Hey guys, welcome to a Light in the Darkness podcast. I'm Carly Robison. I'm a wife, a mother, and a person who's been suffering with severe health challenges for over 10 years. Through that time, I've had successes and failures while trying to maintain a positive attitude. Now I want to share what I've learned with you, hoping to make your hard times a little easier. This podcast is to help those of us facing times of darkness and trial find ways to let the light in. Hello, welcome to episode three of my Light in the Darkness podcast. I'm so excited to introduce you to my next guest. Her name is Alex Lamoureux. Thanks so much for being here, Alex. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. It's going to be fun. I'm excited for these guys to get to know you. So let me tell you a little bit about Alex before we get started. So Alex Lamoureux grew up on a seven-acre hobby farm with her parents and her two sisters in Lehigh, Utah. Although she was the middle child, she was anything but quiet. She participated in dance, karate, and even beauty pageants, ultimately competing for Miss Utah in 2012. She graduated with her Bachelor of Science degree from the University of Utah in communications with an emphasis in argument and conflict resolution with hopes to attend law school. Ultimately, she decided a graduate degree in social work felt like the right path. She continued her education by ultimately completing her master's degree at BYU. She's not abandoned her dreams of law school and is determined to attend one day. Her work as a therapist brings her great fulfillment as she helps clients navigate complex interpersonal situations and heal from traumas. So thanks for joining us again. So I'm really interested in the work that you do. What made you decide on the career in social work first? Yeah. So I think like a lot of social workers, I've come to find mostly it stems from some type of personal experience and wanting to be able to give back in some way or contribute some of the things that you've learned as you were going through your own, your own life trials um, Mm -hmm. and share some of that. So that's really what happened. I had always wanted to be a lawyer. When I went to the U, I did their pre-law program and I loved it. Um, And during all of that, I kind of went through a, a life changing situation and trauma where I was introduced to the world of, substance abuse through a loved one um, and kind of going through that those challenges with him and I learned so much I was going to AA meetings and CA meetings and Al-Anon and I thought you know what I would love to be able to work in this field to help recovering addicts to help their family members to help their loved ones and so I on a whim applied for, and I didn't even know that's the funny thing. I'm like, okay, so I think that means I want to be a therapist, but like, where do I go from here? (laughs) You know? So I ended up kind of on a whim at the last minute applied to the masters of social work program at BYU. And I truly believe it was meant to be because it's, I got in and I did the program and I loved it and it landed me exactly where, where I wanted to be. And it's been super fulfilling. I spent two years as a clinical director of a substance abuse treatment program. And as I grew, grew my family and had children, I, I just kind of transitioned into a private practice where I've been able to meet with clients individually in my own office, set my own hours, 
So I can, yeah, be a mom and do that. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. You know, it's a funny story. So Alex and I have actually never met in person, (laughs) but I'm friends with her in-laws and you actually lived in my neighborhood for a while, I think. Yes. Due to my health issues, I haven't been able to go to church. So we've just become Mm -hmm. friends online, but you have the sweetest little family. Can you tell us a little bit more about your family? Thank you. Yes. So I, like you mentioned, I married Justin, whose um, mom lives in your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And we actually met in high school. So Justin and I are high school sweethearts. (laughs) Um, And we got married in 2014. So we've been married for about six years. We have two little boys, Darren, we call him Ren for short. He will be three in a couple of weeks, which is so insane to me. Three going on 13 because he He's is so cute. <laughs> he is so wild and passionate and I just love him so much. And then we have our little Tucker, we call him Tuck for short, and he is just just under six months old. Oh, and they are the light of our life. I know, <laughs> so sweet. So two little boys. I came from a family of all girls. So oh. I at first was like, I don't know what to do with boys. And now I feel like I won't know what to do with girls. Like being a boy mom is so special and so fun. Well, they're so cute too. So, um, so the reason I wanted to kind of have you on my podcast this past February, you actually had a pretty big trial happen in your life, um, that had to do with your family. Can you tell me more about it? Yes. So, um, Tucker was born in January and before he was even born, I was so terrified of having a winter baby you know, because you hear about RSV, you know about cold and flu season. And even when a baby's born in the summer, you still want to be so, so careful with them because they have zero immune system. And so it was always something that I was kind of nervous about from the beginning. I was just thinking, I don't want him to be sick. Nobody's going to come over and meet him. You will be doused in Lysol and hand sanitizer. Much to my mom's and my mother-in-law's dismay, please don't kiss my baby, you know, <laughs> and don't touch his hands. Yeah. And so no matter, I mean, it's, it's just taught me one thing I've learned too, is like, no matter how hard we try to control, some things are out of our hands, literally. Sure. And so mm-hmm. Tucker, when he was a month old, got really sick. He um, contracted RSV and I had taken him to the pediatrician's office and they told me, you know, yes, he's, he's definitely sick. Keep an eye on him, but we're not overly concerned. They actually told me they didn't think it was RSV at first and he might've just had some little bug. So I went home, but my, you know, you have that like mother's intuition. For sure. Yeah. I was like, there's something else. Like there's something missing. So thank heavens. I have a little the outlet monitor that mm-hmm. so many moms have these days, just like a little pulse ox. And the next day I was holding him and I could tell that he was stuffed up and the heart monitor actually went off telling me that his respirations had dropped into the seventies. Oh, wow. and yeah, that was enough to just about send me over the edge. <laughs> so I, I called my sister. She's actually a nurse in the ICU at primary children's. And I told her what happened. And I said, I'm nervous to take him back into the doctor because I feel like they will just send me home again. And she said, no, if it was really in the seventies, you need to go. So I called my pediatrician's office and let them know. And they said, actually, our, our policy is, is if they drop below 90 in the office, we actually just send you via ambulance to the ER. 
And I just thought, what in the world? So yesterday you're telling me he's fine. And now I'm supposed to just take him to the emergency room. So I called Justin and he came home from work and we dropped Ren off at my parents' house and took him to the hospital and we went into the ER and I just, I'm typically a little bit of an anxious person and I'm always worried about what's going to happen. But I truly thought they were going to take a look at him and say, yeah, he's got a cold, but that must've been a fluke. He's, he's fine. Um, and that we would be sent home. I, I honestly thought, Oh, we're here for nothing. They're just going to send us home. And so we go into the ER and sure enough, they take a look at him and they say, yeah, his, his sats are lower than we like to see. And they told me that they were going to admit him to the children's unit. And so I was kind of jarred for a second. I was like, whoa, I was not expecting to, to be admitted. And the doctor said, honestly, I think it will just be overnight. He probably just needs just a little bit of extra oxygen, a little bit of help. And you guys will probably go home tomorrow. But he was only like four weeks old, right? Yeah, he was, he was exactly four weeks old. So he was born January 5th and we were in the emergency room on February 5th. So yeah, just so, so tiny, so tiny. And you're already so nervous with them at that age. And so I was, in a way I was relieved, like, okay, he's going to get the care he needs. Mm -hmm. We're in a good hospital. Um, and the doctors, they know what they're doing. So they admitted us and we stayed the night there with him and just kind of progressively he was getting worse and worse so he started off on just like a nasal cannula of a little bit of extra air to help him and he just still was not where he should be so they bumped him up to what they called a high flow i feel like i'm a doctor now basically <laughs> yes <laughs> you know, like i just had to learn all of this stuff so oh between that and gray's anatomy i just <laughs> Feel like I know and so Google, WebMD, yeah, we're all doctors. <laughs> uh, so yeah, they put him on a, on a high flow to give him more oxygen, and they were trying to suction out his his nose and his little throat because he was so so congested. And honestly, at that point, I like I knew he was sick, but we still we just didn't know. We had no idea what was coming, and it just progressed so fast. So the next morning. Uh, the new pediatrician came on shift and said, you know, based on his numbers over the night, we we think we want to keep him for another day. He's not where we would like him to be to send him home. And so maybe tonight we might change our minds. And in that moment, Justin and I looked at each other, Justin's my husband, and we just both thought, yeah, we're not, we're probably not getting out of here today. We'll probably be here for another day or so. And so at that point, Ren was still at my parents. We, we weren't, like really prepared to be at the hospital for several days. So we kind of took turns running over to our house to get some things together and to shower and then met back up at the hospital. And it was that second night when things started to get really bad, really fast. So his um, respiratory rate and his heart rate were both dropping and sometimes at the same time. And that's really dangerous. And he was getting to the point where he was quickly becoming too acute to stay in the in just the normal children's unit. And they ended up putting him on CPAP, which is just awful. It's like this mask, you know, it covers Mm -hmm. their whole little face. It was bigger than him. They didn't even have one that was big enough for his tiny face. So it kept falling off and then he would have these desaturations again. And he was, I mean, we didn't know it. And it kills me to even say this out loud, but quite literally just dying right in front of us. And we didn't understand 
how serious it was. And so our doctor came in and told us, you know, we are, we're going to have to transport him to primary children's in Salt Lake and he'll need to be life lighted because that's how quickly he was decompensating and the little air that we could give him wasn't working and his heart rate was dropping and couldn't he just he couldn't breathe and they couldn't help him they didn't have what they needed to help him and of course being in the middle of the winter it was february it was close to probably close to 11 o'clock in in the evening and the life light helicopters had just been grounded because the flight conditions were so poor it was a big oh, snowstorm and so they have what they call a lifelike ground team, which is basically what they use when they can't fly the helicopters. And so they told us that the lifelike ground team was headed to us, but because of the storm and the road conditions, it was going to be two hours until they oh could gosh. get him. And my heart just sunk because I'm like, I'm watching my son and they don't know what to do. The nurses are getting nervous. The doctor is nervous and they're kind of just trying to keep him alive essentially until we can get him hooked up to the machines that he's going to need because at that point they told us you know we're going to need to innovate him and put him on life support put him on a ventilator to breathe for him because his little body just couldn't do it alone Aww. and that as a mom i think it's got to be the worst thing that i've experienced um it's scary and hearing from my sister she's a like i said a picky nurse up at primaries i know that when the, those babies get innovated that's that's the serious business. And sometimes they don't come off of those machines. And I just collapsed. Justin and I both just were crying in each other's arms and just waiting. I was literally holding this face mask on my baby, just trying to make sure he was getting the air that, that he could get and waiting desperately for the lifelight team to get there. So when they finally did arrive, it was so scary but also such a relief I felt like okay these people know what they're doing they're trained for this they're gonna help my baby for babies for little yes kids. for little kids yeah. and so the life light, the head life light nurse came in and started bossing everyone around and I was immediately I was like okay I can trust her she's gonna she's gonna take care yeah. of Tuck and as they were putting him on the stretcher uh to get him with all the the life basically like they would put him in a helicopter, but instead an ambulance, he had what they call a Brady DSAT, which means his saturation, his oxygen level and his heart rate dropped dangerously low at the same time. And he basically just stopped breathing. Um, oh my gosh. And so the lifelight nurse said, how long has this been happening? And I can't put this kid in, in, in the ambulance without getting him intubated essentially saying like he would die on the way there if he weren't intubated. So she had to actually intubate him, which is where, you know, they put the tube down the throat yeah. at the hospital before she could even get him in the ambulance. And my nurse looked at me and said, Alex, I think you're probably going to want to leave the room for this. You yeah. shouldn't see this. And I thought, how can I leave my baby, you know, alone? He's four weeks old. And I really just had to trust that they were going to do it. And do it right, hopefully the first time, and get air in that little boy. And so yeah. Justin and I went to the room next door, and we just held each other and cried. And I remember trying to call my sister. At this point, it was probably close to 1.30 in the morning, and she was trying to stay awake to talk to me, but she had fallen asleep. And I remember saying to her, how long does it take to get innovated? Because it's been 15 minutes, and I haven't heard anything, and I'm freaking out. And she finally called me back and said, sometimes it takes a couple tries. 
and just tried to console me. And then my nurse came in and said that they had done it. The, the life flight nurse got it on the first try and they got him on the, you know, the air that he needed and we were leaving and it's just almost kind of like a blur. We got in the ambulance and we hurried up to Salt Lake. We got to primary children's in the early, early hours of the morning. I'm trying to remember everything. I'm trying to explain to the new doctors and residents because yes, it's yes. a teaching <laughs> hospital. So, you would know there's yes. so many of them there and so many people are asking questions and they're just you know, he's got so many wires coming out of him and they're setting mm -hmm. him up on this ventilator and, and just trying to get him stable really. And I think even then I, it really hadn't even sunk in yet how sick he actually was. Cause I was just on like go mode. We had probably gone just so in shock with yeah, and exhausted. Happening. I mean, we hadn't mm -hmm. slept and I had, it was like my worst nightmare was literally just coming, tr coming true in front of my eyes yeah. and there was nothing I could do. Um, and so they kind of got him settled. I fell asleep in the chair next to him. And during RSV season at primaries, it is so crowded in there. So we didn't have our own room. We were sharing with another baby who was also Which is on crazy to think support. all those germs in the same room. I, <laughs> I bet that was hard. <laughs> it was so hard, but luckily they only room patients together that have the same strain of a certain oh, virus. So they can test that. So, okay. Yeah, they were able to test and say, yes, he definitely has RSV. It had actually progressed into pneumonia. It had gotten so bad. So we had RSV oh, and pneumonia. Oh, and so the other baby that was in our room separated by the curtain had the same strain of the virus. So that part, I guess, was good, but it was still hard because there was only one chair in there and Justin and I are both there, both exhausted, you know, and they just kind of got him stable and they were watching him, but I could tell even though that he was stable, the machine was breathing for him and working a lot harder than they like it to work. Um, mm -hmm. They kind of want the baby to be breathing with the machine and just have that support there if needed. But he wasn't able to do any of it on his own. And they started taking x-rays of his chest and it was so cloudy. I remember seeing the picture and just not even knowing what was what. And the yeah. doctors and nurses explaining to me, so you should be able to see black here in between his ribs, but we couldn't see any black because there was so much mucus and so much gunk in his little lungs that it was just all foggy. You like could barely even see his ribs. It was so bad. And, and the ventilator was supposed to help him, you know, be able to breathe while he was clearing that they were suctioning him out. Um, they had given him so much medicine that he really wasn't even there. You know, it was just yeah. his little tiny body. And after a few days on the ventilator, he wasn't making improvements. And I remember them coming in to talk to me and saying, you know, we think it's possible that he has meningitis as well. <sighs> and my heart just sank because a few years ago, my sweet cousin had a baby and he at 17 days old passed away. Um, he had meningitis. Oh no. And so in my mind, like a newborn with meningitis, that means they're gonna they're gonna die because that had yeah. been her experience and my heart just ached for her. And I remember thinking to Heavenly Father, like, if there's one thing I've ever asked of you, like give me any trial, but don't take one of my babies. Yeah. <laughs> and now what's happening? Yeah. At that point they had put him on a stronger ventilator, the it's called the VDR and I can't remember what it stands for, but essentially it would shake his body 
nonstop. So it was constantly just this, the sound still, I can still remember it and it sends me into a tailspin. But the purpose of that was to shake up all this gunk, all this congestion in his little body and help him work it up. Mm-hmm. And if, if that didn't work, there was really only one more step that they could do before there wasn't anything else they could do. And so I remember just breaking down at, they have at primary children's like a little prayer garden outside. And I remember going out there when they told me they were putting him on this new machine and just breaking down and just sobbing. And I wanted to, Justin was asleep. I wanted to call somebody, but I didn't want to worry my parents. And I finally broke down and, and called my mom and, and just sobbed to her and, and just had a good cry, you know, mm-hmm. and I um, pulled myself together and went back in the room because that's what you do. You know, you think yes. you don't, people would say, I don't know how you're going on. And I would say, I don't know either, but you just don't have another choice. I needed to show up. So that's interesting that you say that. So, um, I did my own kind of story on the first episode of this podcast. And something that I've learned through going through my trials is I used to tell people that I I would say, oh, I don't have a choice. I've been given this trial and I don't have a choice, but that's, that's not true. You always have a choice and you, you could have just stayed out in that garden. You could have just said, I can't do this anymore. I'm just going to, you know, leave him in there and Justin can deal with it and that's going to be fine. But you, you made that choice. You, you chose to go back in there. You chose to be mom and you chose to be strong for your family. Yeah. That's what we do for our babies, right? (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. So about how long did he end up being in there? So he was on that, um, what they call the VDR for almost six days, oh which, yeah, it was long. It was a long, hard week in the ICU. Yeah. And at one point it still wasn't getting better. And they thought, are we missing something? And they said it could be the meningitis and they wanted to do a spinal tap on him <laughs> and a spinal tap on a four month old, a yeah. four week old baby four is insane old. to begin with. But then to add on top of it, that he was on this ventilator that was shaking his body consistently. He was never still. There Um, actually was, one of the doctors had told me it had never been done on a baby his age on that specific type of life support at that hospital. And this was going to be a first. They'd done lots of spinal taps on babies, but not while on this specific machine that was moving them. Mm -hmm. And so I was just so nervous. And the doctors were going back and forth about, should we do it? Should we not? Should we do it? Should we not? Um, And then literally minutes before the procedure was about to happen, um, the resident came in and said that they had gotten a test back that showed that his uh, RSV had turned into pneumonia and then turned into a specific strain that would explain why he was so sick and made the doctors confident enough that he didn't have meningitis and that it was this other sickness that was making them that was making him so sick. And so that was a relief. I mean, it's sad to say that finding out your baby has streptococcal, something, (laughs) something, pneumonia is good news, but I was so relieved because they said, we're not going to do the spinal tap. It's too risky at this point. And then from then on out, it was really just a waiting game of him being on that machine for the next almost week. Um, 
and you're there with them. I mean, 24 seven, luckily we were able to get a room at the Ronald McDonald house, which is like a charity house near the hospital for parents of critically ill children where they can go and sleep and shower and just have somewhere to put all their stuff, you know, while they're yeah. in the hospital with their babies. And, and so Justin and I, the first probably four nights, I refused to leave his bedside. I wouldn't leave. I, I just couldn't imagine. And finally, our nurse, one of the nurses that I just loved and adored and trusted, told me, she's like, you need to go get sleep because you're losing it, essentially. Yeah. And I was. I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. And so at about 1.30 in the morning, I decided to go back to the Ronald McDonald house with Justin and sleep. And I got seven hours of sleep, which is the most I'd had in months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, with the newborn and pregnant. With the newborn and being <laughs> pregnant. And I woke up and it was what I needed. I needed that rest and I, I could go back to the hospital and keep fighting. And so that's what we did. And slowly but surely, he started to get better. And every day that they didn't take him off the life support was so hard but I just had to trust and work with our team of doctors and the residents and the nurses. And they took such great, excellent care of him. Um, and through that time I was able to pray with Justin and know that our family was praying with us and for us and, and fasting, um, making these sacrifices to kind of plead with heavenly father to save our baby. Um, We fasted for you guys. Yes, thank you. We (laughs) felt that. And I always wondered beforehand, you know, people would say they could feel that strength. Mm -hmm. And I always thought, is that real? Do people really feel that? And I can just, uh, my own little personal testament is that is so real. There is no way that Justin and I would have been able to go through that time of watching our son you know, essentially slip through our fingers Yeah. without that support from our, we're so, so blessed and so lucky, um, that we had that. I don't, we couldn't have done it without that. And leaving Ren, you know, just out of the blue, being gone from him for yeah, two weeks. And he was only, I mean, he's still just two, but he was yeah. a young two. Yes, he was <laughs> Younger a young two. two and just adjusting to having a brother, um, and all of a sudden we were just gone. And so my heart was in all these different spots and he wasn't allowed into the, into the PICU, nor would I want him in there to be infested <laughs> with germs, you know? Yeah. And so to see and him pushing buttons, <laughs> right. To see him, we had to leave tuck and it just felt, it was so Aww. hard. Um, yeah, so there's no way I could have done it without those prayers. And, and I was able to receive a, a priesthood blessing, which in my faith, you know, I I believe that that's the power of God through his servants here on earth to bless me with strength and comfort and Tuck was able to receive blessings as well for healing. And those were, were really therapeutic and special and sacred. The the PICU is a sacred place and the work that happens there is amazing. And so I think that whole hospital is honestly, yeah, it honestly (laughs) is. We were able to go to a church service there Mm -hmm. and that was so special. And one of the most spiritual experiences of my life, I remember just taking the sacrament and just bawling, you know, silently sobbing and looking around at all the other parents and families and, and critically ill children that were there, you know, with cancer or, um, 
you know, whatever they were dealing with and you don't know, but you feel their pain and you have so much empathy because you're all there together, you know, and it was so, so sacred and special. So there were a lot of tender mercies along the way. Um, Mm -hmm. but I guess long story short, after a week on the ventilator, he started improving and it was actually on Valentine's day, about 10 days after we'd been admitted to the hospital that they took the they extubated him. They took him off the life support and he just, he did amazing. He was able to go right from a life support to just a high flow oxygen, which was such a blessing that he didn't have to go back on that awful mass of CPAP, (laughs) you know? And I remember holding him on Valentine's day and, and him starting to look like himself again, because he had been on morphine and they had to, they literally paralyzed him to keep him still to be on this machine. And so he was completely and absolutely lifeless for that week. And so starting to see him come back and him being comforted by being held by me when I was finally able to hold him, it just healed my heart in so many ways. Um, And then we were up on the children's unit uh, for a few days. And actually during that time, my grandma, who I love so much, was diagnosed with RSV and in the oh. hospital herself in the ICU. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, I didn't, I didn't post anything about that because it was so all new and fresh and not my story to tell at the time. Um, but here I had my grandma who I love more than anything. I mean, my best friend, my sweet grandma and my baby on life support at the same time, dying of the same disease. Wow. And, and my mom called me and told me, I'm going up to, to basically say goodbye to my mom. Um, she's, she's dying and, and this could be it. And I just remember being so heartbroken that I couldn't leave my baby who was also dying, you know, luckily had turned a corner. Um, and so when he stabilized and was in the children's unit and he was doing well and just kind of learning to eat again, I actually was able to leave the hospital. Justin stayed with him and I left primary children's to drive to Logan with my dad Mm. to say goodbye to my grandma Mm. and to see her for what I thought was the last time. Um, Thank heaven. She miraculously recovered. Both of them did. Wow, Both of them. Wow. Yeah. I mean, she, you know, is older and definitely still needs to be careful. Um, But was able to go home and I was able to bring Tucker home a few days later And that's when like the healing really started, you know, because I was terrified. I remember when they turned off his monitors in the children's unit, they weren't, the nurses weren't monitoring his oxygen. And I remember thinking like, what, what are you doing? How are we not checking? How are we not watching? Like he's going to, I literally thought he would die if I couldn't see Mm -hmm. what his heart rate was and what his oxygen level was. And they told me we do this to all of our babies towards the end because he's not going to be on monitors at home and you need to learn how to be comfortable with that. And (laughs) I just thought I will never be comfortable with that. And the second we get Mm -hmm. home, his outlet monitor is going right back (laughs) on. And it did. But we got to go home and we got to be together as a family and uh, it just made me so grateful. You know, none of the frivolous stuff really mattered anymore. A few weeks before Tuck got sick, actually a few days before Tucker got sick, I got an awful haircut. (laughs) And I remember, I remember being so bitter. I cried real tears over it. How sad I was that somebody had cut six inches of my hair off. And then I remember, you know, bringing Tuck home and how grateful I was, how none of that mattered anymore. Yeah. 
and just being so grateful that we could be home and that we were together. And then coronavirus happened. So we were going to quarantine anyway, but then everybody was quarantining. Yeah. And, and so it just kind of got really crazy there for a minute. And we've just been kind of healing up at home and, and staying around the house. And, you know, just now in June, starting to venture out a little bit, but not a lot. Yeah. Um, Well, I I want to kind of read. um, So like you said, you posted a lot on social media. I did. Um, It's a journal. Yeah. And so I wanted to read just something that um, I kind of thought was really important for people to hear um, that you had written. So you wrote, "It, it is very hard for me to take pics of my sweet tuck in his current state. And it feels more scary and vulnerable to share them. But journaling in this way has been helpful. And when we get through this, I want to be able to reflect on the tender mercies we've experienced. It's devastating to see him hooked up the way he is. Although we are confident he's getting the absolute best care, we have been awestruck by the literal brilliance of the care team we have. The nurses have been my saving grace and have been a source of constant reassurance when we start to feel too down. I think it's scary to open up ourselves like that when we're in the midst of a trial. Oh, but oh my gosh, I firmly yeah. believe that sharing like that and like you are today can not only help you and be therapeutic to you, I feel like it's going to help so many other people. I'm sure that it helped people take their own kids in. And if they had that mama gut feeling, right? Say, nope, we're not going home. <laughs> yeah. Or just like you did, call and get him in. Yeah. Um, and I think it also, you know, when you share things like this, it it reminds people of the importance of washing their hands and not being oh, around yes. people when they're sick. And just like you right. said, all of these things that you were learning through your experience with RSV are things that we can apply into this worldwide pandemic and climate right right now you know exactly yeah I mean I always was like I told my my family and my in-laws if you want to meet our baby when he's born I need proof of your current vaccines that you've had the flu shot like you have to be totally well and if I see that then you can meet him you know kind of joking but also like passive aggressively like don't think you're gonna come around my kid and not like be safe and healthy. Um, and so, yeah, that was just such a testament to me. Even if you don't think you're sick or you just think it's a little bug, like these little babies, they don't have any immune system. Mm -hmm. And so I still, I don't know how he caught whatever he did. I know that we took all the precautions that we could have, but it just was such a testament to me. You can never be too safe. So Mm -hmm. if the mom doesn't want you to hold her baby, just look from a distance. It's not personal. It's because we love them and we want to keep them safe. And, and I think that that newborn time is such a sacred time for the family anyway. And it's so important to respect those boundaries. And so um, that's something that definitely I want to tell people all the time. Wash your hands. Don't kiss, your, don't kiss other people's babies. Don't even touch other people's babies, okay? And don't be offended it. when they don't want you to come over. <laughs> so other than that, um, yeah. for the people who are listening, you know, everybody goes through trials. Not everybody is going to have a sick four-week-old baby. Um, not everybody's going to have an allergy come on as an adult. Um, right. But we can all find strength and courage and hope 
by sharing and learning from other people. So what are some things that you feel like you learned or strategies that you used in order to keep yourself in a positive mindset as much as you could? And like you said, as you've moved on, you know, trying to have this new <laughs> world of trying to keep him safe, but also being, you know, realistic and knowing you and, have to yeah. leave your house sometime. <laughs> living, through, living through a pandemic. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> so um, what are some strategies you think? I think the, the post that you just read really kind of highlighted a strategy for me and that was to open myself up, um, to accept help from people because, so often we, even if we need help, we don't want to ask for it or accept it for whatever reason, pride or not wanting to inconvenience anybody. But I quite literally knew on that drive up to primary children's in the ambulance that we, there was no way we were going to do this alone. We literally needed an army. We needed a miracle. We needed to defy those odds. And and I believe my heavenly father needed to hear from a lot of people. <laughs> uh, and so making myself vulnerable, although it was so hard, it was saving grace because I was able to get support. I was able to know that I had other people on my side, cheering us on, praying for us, fasting for us, um, sending well wishes and positive vibes. I didn't care what religion, what faith, <laughs> what voodoo, whatever. Yes. I just needed to know that there were people on our side. And so I think opening myself up and, and humbling myself and, and Justin as well to ask for that help was a huge part of it. And journaling, whether it's on Instagram, social media, or just a note in your phone, or if you like to write it out, pen and paper, doing that, getting those emotions out is so important. And as a therapist, I mean, I tell people to do that stuff every day. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I was back in my own spot of like, okay, I have to take some of my own advice here. I need yeah. to be vulnerable. I need to ask for help. I don't have all the answers. I need to be able to put my feelings out and into words. And, and I knew I would want to remember it because even though those posts, even hearing you read it brings this emotion to me that's still raw. It, yeah. it just reaffirms the miracles that we did see and the blessings that we did have and reminds me to be so grateful and to have that gratitude again. I think that that's, that's one thing that's really helped. I think that's and awesome. other things. Yeah, uh -huh, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say the other thing, and I tell my, my therapy clients this all the time too, is to have a list or a few things, and I call them my non-negotiables. <laughs> and those things look different for everybody. For me, my non-negotiables are no matter what, I'm going to drink a Diet Dr. Pepper at some point during the day. <laughs> I'm, I need to exercise. And I need to read something or listen to something, whether it's a spiritual podcast or my scriptures or talks from religious or spiritual leaders. I need to study something. And those are my non-negotiables, things that I do every day, no matter what, even when I don't feel like it, because those things keep me going and they nourish me. And so, and I know that they work when I'm yeah. at my best, when I'm feeling my best, I'm doing those things. And so I can't expect to heal and feel better when I'm not taking care of myself in those ways. And so I, I would encourage people to find out what your non-negotiables are. Maybe it's listening to music. Maybe it's taking a nap. Maybe it's going for a walk. Maybe it's 
taking 10 minutes to meditate or journal or talk to your spouse or a friend. I don't know what it is. You know, it's different for everybody, mm -hmm. but you have to do it and they have to be non-negotiables. You do them every day and they, they help you get through. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing and thank you for yeah. being vulnerable and being on here um, and telling all of us your story. So if somebody was listening to this um, podcast and they were inspired by your story or if they maybe had any questions for you or anything like that, is there some way that they can get in touch with you? Yes. So I have um, an email address for my private my private therapy practice that I'm very responsive to. Uh, it's seek solution, seek solutions dot therapy at gmail.com. And I'm very responsive to that. And my, the place where I tend to hang out the most is on my Instagram. You can find me on Instagram at Alex dot lamb. And I, you can find my whole story there. I have all of my posts there that people um, can go back and read and hear maybe some of the details that I didn't talk about today because we had so many tender mercies and, and sure. precious experiences. And just kind of follow along with our family now and see how healthy and beautiful Tuck is <laughs> and how we've coped. And I, I'm sure I've journaled on there about some of the PTSD type stuff that comes up and how I try to deal with that and just kind of finding joy in, in the, in the minute where we are and trying to be present. Yeah. And I, I love to reach out and connect with people on there. Awesome. Thanks so much for sharing that. And yeah, um, thank you all for listening. Um, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it. And if you want to make sure to catch all of my episodes, you can subscribe and follow me on iTunes or Spotify Podbean and anywhere else that you listen to your podcasts. And as always, you can reach me at carlyrobison.org. We'll see you here next Wednesday. Bye. I want to give a special thanks to my son Carter for recording and writing our intro and outro music for this podcast. If you want to hear more of his music, you can find him on Instagram at carterguitar456. 